It's time. Time for what, you might ask? It's time to optimize your health and upgrade your life. Cutting-edge research, biohacks, ancestral wisdom, wellness, intuition, and more. This is The Synthesis of Wellness. Your host and biohacker Chloe Porter has a background in engineering, innovation, and research. Her analytical background coupled with her journey in overcoming a brain tumor and defeating several chronic illnesses enables her to approach health and wellness in an innovative way. And now more than ever, she is ready to share her biohacking secrets and expose cutting edge research. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. If you're new, welcome. I am Chloe Porter, and I'm really glad to have you guys tuning in today. So a quick update, if you didn't hear from an earlier episode, I am actually partnered with the Biohacking Congress that is taking place in Miami from October 20th to the 22nd, I believe. And... I, of course, will be there since I am a partner, but if you are attending and you want to meet up, totally reach out to me, Uh, DM me on Instagram, however you need. I would love to get into contact and connect with you at the Congress. And if you're wanting to go and still need a ticket, also reach out to me because I can get you a discount. So feel free to DM me on Instagram. One more thing before we get into the meat of today's episode. So I've recently been using the red light and infrared therapy flex beam device that has both red and infrared LEDs in it. So it is a non-EMF emitting wearable and I've been wearing it or using it over my gut area in particular, and I'll tell you why in just a second, but the device is pretty powerful. It can penetrate up to 10 centimeters within the body. To me, that stat was and still is really pretty intriguing. Um, So I know when it comes to penetrating deep into body organ systems or tissues, 10 centimeters really is not a ton to work with in all honesty, but it's actually a lot more than you might think. So all of this kind of led me down the path of wondering how it would impact my gut, gut microbiome in particular. So I'm actually experimenting with this right now, but before I get into too many details of the experiment, I do want to give some context from some scientific research publications just so you can see how the gut microbiome responds to red 
and near-infrared light therapy. So I'm going to read off a few studies just to give some context. First, though, it is important to note what photobiomodulation is. Um, photobiomodulation is the use of red or near-infrared light to heal, restore, and stimulate multiple physiological processes and to repair damage caused by injury or disease, according to the National Institute for Health. Okay, so with that aside, now that we know that, one study found that photobiomodulation delivered as low-level laser to the abdomen of healthy mice produced a significant change in the gut microbiome. So in other words, photobiomodulation significantly altered the microbial diversity of the microbiome, an effect most pronounced in mice treated three times per week with near-infrared light at 808 nanometers. But what's important to note is that the effects were not apparent with a single treatment of red light. So photobiomodulation also produced a 10,000-fold increase in the proportion of the beneficial bacterium, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, allobaculum, within the microbiome of mice after 14 days of treatment with near-infrared light, again we see that infrared, but not with the red light. I also saw that they repeated this study and found the same result, basically showing how the wavelength of light was a critical parameter for determining the effectiveness of photobiomodulation on the gut microbiome in particular, since the red light didn't work as well as the 808 nanometer wavelength infrared light. And I will mention that the researchers proposed that one possible reason for this very pretty impressive modulation of the gut microbiome using photobiomodulation due to the secondary effect of photobiomodulation, meaning that the photobiomodulation first affected the mouse inflammatory response. And in turn, that is what affected the gut microbiome. That's what they believe. And they stated that this was pretty feasible given the intimate relationship between the microbiome and the inflammatory response. And so they hypothesized, kind of based on all that, that the anti-inflammatory effect of the photobiomodulation shifted the gut away from dysbiosis and towards health. All that pretty interesting. So another publication claimed that they were performing preliminary unpublished work using photobiomodulation on the human gut microbiome. And what they found was increases in acromantia mucifinilia. I cannot pronounce that one. Um, bifidobacterium and some other beneficial species as well. But all of these were recognized as correlated with a healthy gut microbiome. And in addition, the study also found a decrease in the Firmicutes to Bacteroides ratio, 
which is proposed as an indicator of gut health. And that's because this ratio is often off in those with metabolic syndrome. So, okay, with all of that said, if you know me, you know that I am pretty darn obsessed with optimizing my digestion, my gut microbiome, and my overall gut health in general. So, like I mentioned earlier, I'm actually doing a little experiment on myself to see how red light and infrared light affects my digestion and gut health. So I'm going to use the FlexBeam device since it delivers both red light and infrared light. And the red light that is delivered in the FlexBeam device is between the wavelengths of 625 to 635 nanometers, while the infrared light is delivered at 815 nanometers, which if you remember from the mouse study is pretty darn close to that 808 nanometer wavelength used in the study. And that was the one that they claimed made the most difference. And this FlexBeam device that I am using, it has six infrared LEDs. So it has quite a few. Um, so I am definitely interested to see how this experiment plays out on myself. It's kind of an N equals one experiment, but I'm really excited. And with that said, since the earlier study conducted on the mice utilized photobiomodulation on the abdominal region three times a week for two weeks, at 808 nanometers for the infrared and 660 nanometers for the red light, I'm going to go ahead and use the device five times a week for three weeks before I really assess any changes. And the I'll also note the irradiance or power density of the flux beam. That's also uh, something you want to look for in any red or infrared light device. But the irradiance of the flex beam is also pretty great. It's at 100 milliwatts per centimeter squared for the infrared LEDs. And I'm really more concerned with the infrared rather than the red light because the study specifically stated how the infrared light was more impactful for the gut microbiome, that is. So I'm honestly, again, like I said earlier, I am honestly super excited to try this out. And I'm going to try to get some testing done in addition to my anecdotal perception of how I feel digestion-wise. But all in all, stay tuned for an update on my little N equals 1 experiment. And also do know that there are other laboratory factors that I, of course, would have a difficult time replicating to match those said studies. But that's why this is more of an experiment on myself rather than a set protocol, if you know what I mean. So I think we are at a good transitioning point to start talking about peptides, more specifically cosmetic peptides. There are quite a few different cosmetic peptides out there. So stay tuned for more episodes on this cosmetic peptide topic. But today, I only want to focus on one in particular to really do each of these peptides justice. So I want to focus on thymosin beta-4. 
which actually has many other uses aside from its cosmetic use. But we are going to focus, of course, on its cosmetic use, particularly for hair growth. So you might also see this thymosin beta-4 called TB500, which is a little different, but for the sake of today's episode, it's the same. It's just a synthesized version of this naturally occurring thymosin beta-4 peptide. And some claim it's not technically identical to the thymosin beta-4, but it's just more of a simpler, synthesized, more easily accessible version. So I'll start out by giving some background on this peptide, this thymosin beta-4 peptide, and then I'll talk about some studies, particularly in regards to hair growth stimulation. And also remember, as we're having this conversation, that there are certainly other peptides that stimulate hair growth. Another big one that is commonly used is that GHK copper peptide. But the thing is that not all of these peptides or hair growth treatments in general are applicable for all types of hair loss. For example, someone with leaky gut and autoimmune disease may have so much inflammation within their body that the blood flow to the scalp is impaired. And we know that when blood flow to the scalp is impaired, nutrients and oxygen cannot be delivered and hair loss tends to ensue. On the other hand, someone with a condition like PCOS may need to approach their hair loss from a hormonal standpoint and address potential DHT issues maybe using things like saw palmetto or those copper peptides like I was mentioning. So all in all, my point is that stimulating hair growth is certainly not a one-size-fits-all, just like everything else in life. But I do feel that when it comes to cosmetics or cosmetic treatments, we immediately think that they should work for everyone. Like this hair growth serum should work for everyone to stimulate hair growth. But that is just not the case because the root cause of that hair loss could be very different depending on the person. So enough said on that. Let's get back into thymosin beta form. I feel like thymosin beta 4 or TB500 is a pretty powerful treatment for certain hair loss slash encouraging hair growth situations, but it really does get swept under the rug and forgotten pretty often. One of the reasons I think this is forgotten is because, like I mentioned just a second ago, lots of hair loss is due to hormonal imbalance. So people immediately go to those copper peptides or other DHT blockers, but for many, many people experiencing hair loss, It could be due to inflammatory conditions or a combination, but again, just getting to that root cause is important. So thymosin beta-4 or TB500 could be helpful according to the literature in some of these inflammatory conditions. So what is thymosin beta-4? Well, thymosin beta-4 is a thymus-derived peptide with ever-increasing biological activities mainly affecting wound healing, inflammation, 
fibrosis, and tissue regeneration. See a lot of healing and regeneration in there. So start thinking about that already. So what do we need to know about it in relation to stimulating actual hair growth? First, a quick overview of hair follicle structure and the hair growth cycle will be helpful just to lay some context out there. But also do feel free to go back to episode 22 to get a really in-depth look at how hair growth occurs and a more complete toolkit for how to combat hair loss and encourage hair growth. The episode is pretty general, but it does do a pretty good job of covering all the bases. Of course, today we are only talking about thymosin beta-4 or TB500 because we're focused on those cosmetic peptides. So for simplicity's sake, the hair follicle has a bulb at the bottom. Just above that, there's what is called the bulge. So there's the bulb at the bottom and then the bulge is on top of that. And lastly, we'll also mention that there's the erector pili muscle right in that bulge area. And this muscle holds the hair follicle upright and in place essentially. Okay, now diving into the hair growth cycle. So we've got the antigen, catagen, and telogen phases. Getting into the antigen phase first, this is the active growth phase of hair follicles. So during the antigen phase, stem cells in the bulge area of the hair follicle are activated and they start dividing rapidly. As these stem cells divide and differentiate, the hair shaft grows and emerges from the scalp. The phase also involves the release of a variety of growth factors, which basically promote the proliferation and differentiation of these stem cells in the hair follicles to ultimately encourage this hair growth that we want. So now moving on to that second phase, the catagen phase. So after the antigen phase, Hair enters a transitional period that lasts for about a few weeks. During catagen, the hair follicle undergoes regression and the lower part of the hair detaches from the blood supply. It's basically this transitional phase that ultimately takes us from antigen to the telogen phase, which is the one we're going to talk about now. So the telogen phase is the resting phase of the hair growth cycle. During telogen, the hair follicle remains inactive for several weeks to a few months. And eventually, old hairs are shed. And following this, hair follicles re-enter the antigen phase to start a whole new growth cycle. So with all of that said, now, how does thymosin beta-4 come into play? Remember that we said the stem cells reside largely in that bulge region of the hair follicle, which is located to that erector pili muscle that I was mentioning earlier when I was talking about the structure of the hair follicle. Well, 
at the onset of the antigen growth phase, these bold localized stem cells migrate to the base of the hair follicle to further differentiate into matrix cells and to produce a new hair shaft. So yes, we know this since we just talked about the antigen phase. But another interesting note about this is that the cells emanating from that bulge region migrate down to repopulate what is called the hair matrix, which is down in that bulb region of the hair follicle. But the cells from the bulge also migrate upwards to replenish the skin epithelium and therefore contribute to wound healing processes. You'll see why I included that little side note in just a second. So thymosin beta-4 allows for stem cell migration from the bulge area due to the way in which thymosin beta-4 interacts with a substance called actin. And actin is essentially allowing for the mobility of cells. As actin filaments elongate inside a cell, they push against its membrane, and that enables the cell to move forward, aka cell migration ensues. So this thymosin beta-4 has a central 7-amino acid actin-binding domain that allows it to accelerate cellular migration. So essentially, Thymosin beta-4 has a special amino acid sequence that binds to actin and then enables the cells to migrate faster. This increase in cellular migration is what allows thymosin beta-4 to have these both angiogenic, creating new blood vessels, and wound healing activities. It's essentially speeding up repair and regeneration. And as I just mentioned, Thymosin beta-4 allows for stem cell migration from the bulge area because of this substance called actin, because of its interaction with actin. So that's important to know as we're moving forward with this conversation. So again, going back, in the case of these hair stem cells present within the bulge area, during the antigen phase, thymosin beta-4 encourages faster stem cell migration from the bulge area. And guys, it is also important to note that thymosin beta-4 is endogenously produced. It is naturally produced within our body. So to hit home this point, here's a little snippet from one experimental study that words it pretty well, and I, I definitely appreciated this. So low levels of thymosin beta-4 protein were observed in hair follicles at the telogen or resting phase. Again, low levels in the telogen phase. In these follicles, thymosin beta-4 expression was confined to a small number of cells residing in the bulge region at the level of the erector pili muscle. So again, just stating that the place that thymosin beta-4 was even expressed was only in that bulge region. Then, Hair follicle transition to early antigen, so now we're coming out of the resting phase and we're going into the growth or antigen phase. 
was associated with an increased number of thymosin beta-4 expressing cells in the bulge region. So here we went from very little thymosin beta-4 protein expression in that resting phase, and we were confined to the bulge region, to now we're entering, entering antigen or growth phase, and we're seeing some thymosin beta-4 expressing cells, but they're still in the bulge region. So moving on. Moreover, some thymosin beta-4 positive stained cells were detected in the lower part of the follicle between the bulge and bulb area in this somewhat early antigen phase. So now we're saying that, okay, this is interesting because these thymosin beta-4 expressing cells are now being seen between the bulge and bulb area during this antigen phase. And then at late antigen phase, a significant number of cells located in the lower follicle expressed thymus and beta-4, both in their nucleus and cytoplasm. So with the progression of the hair growth cycle, thymus and beta-4 expressing cells initially detected only in that bulge were observed at the bulb area, suggesting that they were migrating from the bulge region. And that data shows that the temporal and spatial distribution of thymosin beta-4 expressing cells was very similar, coincidentally, to the pattern proposed for the hair follicle stem cells, which emanate from that bulb and migrate downward in order to generate the hair shaft. Again, coincidence, absolutely not. So to recap all of this, what that study is saying is that the natural expression of thymosin beta-4 increases in the stem cells within the bulge area during that early antigen. So we've transitioned from resting to now growth, and we're seeing some natural expression of thymosin beta-4 increasing within those stem cells of the bulge area. And because of that increased expression of thymosin beta-4, cellular migration is accelerated. Because remember, again, we talked about thymosin beta-4's unique interaction with actin that promotes that cellular migration. So then these stem cells can migrate from the bulge area down to the bulb in order to then generate the hair shaft and allow the hair to grow. All in all, this stem cell migration is very essential for the transition from telogen or resting phase to antigen or growth phase in the hair cycle. So it's very unsurprising, in my opinion, that the topical application of thymosin beta-4 on another study conducted on shaved rats, for example, increased this migration and rapidly sped up hair growth. More specifically in that study, after just seven days of treatment, they found an increased number of antigen phase hair follicles in the skin areas treated with thymosin beta-4 and the number of hair follicles in the active antigen growth phase was actually doubled in comparison to the rats not treated with the topical 
thymus in beta 4. Now, with all of that said, before we go into peptide administration, because remember, thymus in beta 4 is a peptide currently being used in some clinics for things like hair loss. But before we go into that, I do want to also touch on that word angiogenesis that I really briefly mentioned earlier when I was talking about the fact that thymus in beta 4 has this natural angiogenic and wound healing capacity. So earlier I said that thymus in beta 4 had angiogenic activity, meaning that it can help contribute to the development of new blood vessels. A very important note here though is that angiogenesis is not always a great thing. Take cancerous tumors, for example. But in this case, since thymus and beta-4 is angiogenic activity, allows it to encourage new blood vessel growth with regards to the scalp, that means that more blood, oxygen, nutrients, etc. are being delivered to the scalp. And since increasing blood flow to the scalp is a huge factor in promoting hair growth, the researchers doing that rat study I just talked about also believed that this angiogenic activity contributed to the increased hair growth that they saw as well. So there is one last thing I want to note here before we talk about peptide administration, and that is inflammation. Inflammation creates a state of decreased circulation and cellular hypoxia meaning that the cells are starved of oxygen as a result of poor blood flow. So it makes sense that someone with a chronic inflammatory condition could experience hair loss as a result of that decrease in blood flow to the scalp. And as with any other inflammatory condition, addressing the root cause would always be the way to go. But I will say that I have heard and seen anecdotal reports of individuals using peptides such as thymus and beta-4 to encourage hair growth following inflammatory conditions. In most studies that I have seen using thymus and beta-4 for hair growth have been using it as a topical, just for reference. However, since thymus and beta-4 does have other uses, some individuals also do sub-Q injections in order to accomplish, you know, other repair or regenerative work within other body systems. So not necessarily talking about stimulating hair growth. I've also seen some people stack this peptide with BPC-157 in hopes of an ultimate like repair regen type stack. And of course, as I say in almost all of my episodes, always work with a licensed physician. So I think that is a good place to wrap up this episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. If you did like this episode in particular, please feel free to leave a rating or review, screenshot it, Post it to your stories over on Instagram and tag me in it so that I can personally thank you for listening. Again, 
Thank you all for tuning in today, and I am very excited to see you in the next one. Bye, guys. The content provided by the Synthesis of Wellness LLC via its podcast and domain is for informational purposes only and should not be used as medical advice or as a replacement for medical care. The Synthesis of Wellness podcast, synthesisofwellness.com, the Synthesis of Wellness LLC, and Chloe Porter disclaim responsibility from adverse effects resulting from using the content provided. Please seek and consult a licensed physician for your health and medical needs. Furthermore, Chloe Porter and the Synthesis of Wellness podcast are not responsible for the opinions of guests featured on the podcast.